This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Thing from Another Medium, the podcast about cross-gender adaptations. I'm Adam. I'm a non-binary literature nerd who loves movies. And I'm Maeve. I'm a trans femme film nerd who reads books sometimes. And today we're talking about one of the lesser known adaptations we have planned for this series, Carrie. Not the movie you think of when you think of the movie Carrie, but the one from 2013, directed by Kimberly Pierce, based on, of course, Stephen King's first novel. And because Stephen King is a man and Kimberly Pierce is a woman for the sake of argument, we can get into that later. That means that Carrie, the new one, is a cross-gender adaptation, and that means we're here to talk about the book, the movie, and everything in between. Yeah, and it's... it tried. I, I wanted to like it so much more than I actually did. I think that's a really good place to start this episode, Miv. Yeah, it tried. Like, like when you say it tried, like, it sounds like you know kind of like a backhanded like compliment like you're trying to be nice to it like like i don't want it to sound like condescending i'm I'm sure i sound condescending as fuck right now like kimberly pierce is an incredibly like smart director she put she put a lot of thought into it she like i've watched a lot of the behind the scenes stuff i um i know her reasoning behind her choices and she explained herself very well i've read interviews with her she she's an incredibly smart a filmmaker and i don't want to like take anything away from her but at the same time like i don't know the it's just the movie didn't work yeah i it's not true that we it's not untrue rather that we want to be nice because kimberly pierce like her debut was boys don't cry which came out in 2000 am i right 2000 or 99 i know boys don't cry is like a controversial movie at least among, like, sort of, like, our generation of queers, um, mainly for, in part because of casting reasons and whatnot, and also because there's, like, a movement that is tired of so many queer stories being about queer pain. But at, this, at the same time, it's, it's hard for people our age, I'm aware of my own awareness in this case, to really grasp how enormous it was that there was a major motion picture that was like in contention for awards and things like that about a trans man. Yeah, like the interview we found with Kimberly Pierce about the anniversary of Boys Don't Cry, they mentioned uh, being interviewed by Joan Rivers on the red carpet and Joan Rivers saying transgender was, um, she she noted that was probably one of the first times the word had been said on on tv with an audience that large yeah it's enormous and it's easy to see how tantalizing carrie the source material stephen king's book would be for someone who had told that story yeah like when i was watching her um commentary for the deleted scenes i didn't have time to watch the commentary for the whole film uh pierce talked about you know viewing the narrative from a queer eye she talked about like there was a scene that was cut from the movie um it was the billy and it was the scene from the 76 film with 
uh, Billy Nolan and Chris Harginson driving around and uh, Chris goes to give Billy a blowjob and then interrupts it to talk about how she wants to get revenge on Carrie and a version of that scene was shot but got cut from the movie and I watched the deleted scene she talked about shooting it as a parallel to the scene that's in her film which is the sex scene between uh, Tommy Ross and Sue Snell and she wanted it to sort of contrast how both heterosexual sex scenes got interrupted because uh, the girl is thinking about another woman. Yeah, there is a lot to get into. Like on our show, we like to enter the gender zone here. I think we might be here all episode, though we're still going to play the music, of course. <laughs> yeah, but before that, I feel like we should at least set some context like... I guess we should start with the book, obviously. Yeah, uh, it was Stephen King's first book, and obviously it was. it's hard to imagine a version of Stephen King who's not enormous block red letter Stephen King. But yeah, he was just like this struggling author from Maine. He was in his like 30s, I believe. He was taking jobs, and he wrote the opening scene, the scene where Carrie gets her first period while she's in the showers with the other girls after gym class, and she has no idea what's happening to her. She thinks she's bleeding to death. And from that moment on, in his own way, he was big red letter Stephen King. Yeah, because, like, was the Richard Bachman stuff pre-Carrie? Oh, no, 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 no. That was definitely after. He used the pseudonym because... Already he was so huge that he wanted to do stuff under a pseudonym so people wouldn't think it was horror. Uh, yeah, I get that. And then, and then, of course, I just want to note, when he got found out, he wrote The Dark Half, about, which is sort of a horror story about an author who tries and fails to use a pseudonym. Gonna have to look that one up. But yeah, um, reading Carrie, like, this was my second time trying to read Carrie because uh, actually in 2013, when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I tried to read the book because the Kim Pierce film was coming out. And I took, no like, I was kind of newly getting into film at the time. And the I saw the one sheet for the new film, which is the close-up image of chloe moretz as carrie with a uh, blood all over her face and i found it very disturbing and i found it very exciting um so i got the book from my school library uh and decided to read it and i got like 30 pages in and i found and i found it a bit too mean for me at the time and the meanness was still kind of a factor that affected me getting through the book this time. But at the same time, like I've read more Stephen King since then. And that meanness is like a big part of his work because he, because I feel like Stephen King as an author truly gets humanity at its worst. He writes a lot about humanity at its worst and that, and he gets why humanity tends to be at its worst he writes a lot i feel like that gets at a lot of his uh famous villains chris harginson for example um and for some other examples uh annie wilkes from misery 
the various incarnations of Randall Flagg that appear throughout his uh, books as well. Um, Heat gets humanity at its absolute worst, and at its absolute worst, it puts down people who society has deemed lesser. And in the case of Carrie, that is Carrie White, who in the book is an overweight, pimply 17-year-old outcast who has a mother who is not well-liked at all in their small main town, her mother being a intense religious fanatic who um, is known for, you know, being that person, the person who is constantly acting above it all, the person who is constantly passing out chick tracks, the person who sees someone sunbathing and screams about how they're going to hell and because they're showing too much skin in front of her daughter. And in the book, the mother, Margaret White, is very much the villain. Uh, kind of one note and a bit of a precursor to some of King's later characters who um, use religion as a crutch and a tool to discriminate, to cast down. And uh, in Carrie's sort of framing device, like it goes back and forth between the narrative and people studying the narrative after the fact. Like inserts from news articles, from academic journals, from books written by survivors to court documents. It is all very interesting. Like you see what the actual narrative is, and then you see people who weren't there guessing the narrative, projecting themselves onto the narrative, trying to figure out something and using the narrative as sort of like their example to figure it out. And of course, the actual narrative, like you, the reader, are privy to it. It's not a sort of unreliable narrator kind of thing. You do know what they're actually thinking, what they're actually feeling why they make the decisions they do. And that is a really interesting choice. It's not a usual choice. The only reason it happened is because, like, King wrote as a story as long as he thought he could. Like, very famously, he threw out the initial draft, and his wife, to whom he's still married 50 years later, like, dug it out of the trash, realized how powerful it was, and persuaded him to send it off to publishing companies, which have a large female contingent, and everyone there loved it. And he wrote as much of it as he could, and they told him to add in the looking back stuff, the other documents, the more sort of epistolary elements, to pad it out to full novel length. Because even then, it's a pretty short book. Yeah, like, my copy ran about 300 pages and like it just absolutely zooms by yeah because it's such an emotional story it's such a tense story and it's such a mean story i agree definitely agree with you how mean king can be and how perceptive that makes him and yeah that's the other half too if you don't know the opening scene carrie gets her first period in the showers after gym class and the other girls all start to make fun of her and like throw tampons at her instead of like caring about her in any way because she's just 
so low as to not even be piteous, to be pitiable. Yeah, like, Carrie is someone who is low on the, super low on the totem pole. She is not well-liked, and she is bullied, but at the same time, the scene in the gym showers is shown as a fulcrum point. It's where the cruelty gets ramped up by an absurd margin. So it's like some of her previous bullying is like, you know, laughing at her on her first day of elementary school when she got on her knees to pray before lunch. That was kind of the start of everything. And then it just continued. It was just a bunch of minor things. She was like called names and stuff. And then it, in the gym showers, it just, that was where it really got at its worst. Yeah, definitely. And in the wake of that, it leads to a sort of heightening because basically to sort of go over the plot quickly, like the other girls all get in trouble for it. And one of them, Sue Snell, like, feels bad about it and wants to try to mend things where the sort of ringleader, the like most popular girl, sort of that figure, Chris Hargison, she wants to retaliate even further. She wants to humiliate Carrie even more. And a lot of the meanness we see is meant to be very feminine, very like women being catty and mean and awful to other women in a way that's very much underlined when the male characters start to enter things and they, like, barely even keep up. Yeah, there are two, like, major uh, male characters in the work. Like, there are other uh, men in the move in the book and in the films, but only two of them really play any sort of major role. And those characters are Tommy Ross, who is Sue Snell's girlfriend, boyfriend, and Billy Nolan, who is Chris Harginson's boyfriend. Tommy Ross is popular kid at school. He's a sports star. He's smart and good academically as well. And he's emotionally intelligent. Like, he writes poetry. He, like, is very perceptive as to what people are thinking and feeling. And it's clear that's why Sue is interested in him. Yeah, because he's like, you know, a jock, but he's not, but he's not stupid. He ha puts genuine thought into his words and his actions. Billy Nolan, on the other hand, is the world's biggest fuckboy. Oh boy, is he. It's the 70s, and I think he really captures, like, the way that kind of person behaved in the 70s. There's a whole lot in there about car culture a lot of the way he behaves around both his male friends and his girlfriend who's like the only woman he associates with at all yeah and in the book king describes billy nolan as kind of being out of time in a way because he's because the way king describes him he like cosplays as like a 50s greaser yeah and he idolizes his like old school hot rod yeah and that makes the casting of John Travolta in the Brian De Palma film kind of brilliant. Oh, it's so much fun. Yeah, it's like, you know, like classic, you know, John Travolta when he was at his young, youngest, his hottest, his 
probably biggest period as a star. He's so hot in the movie. It's insane. It's like two different sides of the 70s. Like Tommy Ross, the smart, intelligent uh, jock, he has the worst 70s hair. Are you kidding? It rules. All hair should be like that. Are you sure it's not because you yourself are someone who has a curly mop at almost all times? The two factors are linked, Maeve. But meanwhile, I was loving all the 70s hair on, like, you know, Nancy Allen and uh, Betty Buckley and especially Piper Laurie. Oh, yes. Like, she's meant to be very traditionalistic, very, like, backwards and old school in, like, all the worst and most cruel ways. But even then, like, she's not immune to how amazing hair was in those days. Yeah. Um... But yeah, we've kind of crossed into the De Palma film, which we kind of have to, because the De Palma film was the first cinematic adaptation of Stephen King. It was a big hit. It's basically the anointment of Brian De Palma as the A-list or high B-list director he was for a lot of his career. And it was not just like a big hit commercially, it was a financial hit as well. And Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie got Oscar nominations for Yeah, and it's easy to see why those performances got Oscar nominations, because the characters, they get so much to do, but they're so instantly memorable, they're so instantly identifiable, and they play so many tones and moods as the story goes on, and Carrie starts to realize that she has telekinetic powers, and her her mom sort of starts to notice that and punish her and abuse her even more than she already is yeah um the book has like this whole explanation for telekinetic powers like the events of the narrative are studied by professors and like there's a whole commission like and they center it around duke university the worst college (laughs) and even though the story takes place in Maine. Yeah. But to but to be fair, can you name a college that's in Maine? Uh UM. Also there are probably like forty maritime schools there. I need to go to Maine sometime if only to have a proper lobster roll. Speaking of lobster rolls, there's a lot of red and white at the end of the movie. I am very sorry I had to make that segue, but nonetheless. I mean, yeah, because uh both films are incredibly bloody. But I feel like the first big compare and contrast moment, which this isn't entirely going to be like the De Palma film, like De Palma is known as like a big, uh, you know, over the top uh, director. His his filmography is very like Hitchcocky, but he brings sort of a Jalo-esque sensibility to it at points. Definitely. Like, like, I definitely think he's an auteur. I think he's an incredible filmmaker, and I think his film Blowout is a fucking masterwork. But at the same time, like, you look at some of his other films and you see that, you know, at the same time, like, he is a very pervy dude. And sometimes that works, and sometimes you get dressed to kill, um, which is a film that has aged less like milk and more like... A newspaper. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. And like, we, we've we already put a lot of emphasis onto that opening scene, the sort of intimacy of it, the fear of it, the like homosocial female 
like setting which you barely ever see in anything anywhere ever and in the De Palma movie like there's no delicate way to say this like it's like four or five solid minutes of softcore porn as the opening credits play yeah it's like a lot of it's very slow motiony shots of like girls in a locker room getting dressed brushing their hair doing shenanigans and a lot of them are naked and then it like gets to carry and she's just like you know trying to take a shower and it doesn't necessarily like like i was watching that scene thinking oh god damn it de palma you pervy bastard um but at the same time like the second it gets to the blood, it all snaps into focus. Like he's shooting Carrie like everyone else, and then it shows a stark, rem- like everyone else in the scene, and then it gives you a stark reminder that she isn't, and that she is considered lesser for it. And Carrie is a lot more empathetic than a lot of De Palma's work, partially because of the source material, partially because of the script, but also because De Palma has like a genuine understanding of the material during the rest of the movie like the the reason why i was going to make the comparison is that de palma shows restraint with uh the specific horror of the thing like you get blood at the beginning and you get blood at the end and there is none of that in between even the scene where travolta goes to get the pig blood you don't see the actual murder of a pig that is something the pierce film does not do there are various moments of horror throughout the entire of specifically blood throughout the entire thing and it feels like it goes too big too often and you kind of lose the restraint i think that's a very good place to start talking about this like syzygy this triptych of adaptations like the book the de palma movie and the pierce movie because in the book it's it's kind of an integral part of culture at this point like carrie gets asked to the prom but chris hargison they rig her to be prom queen and when she goes up on the stage to accept the award they dump a bucket of pig's blood on her and that triggers her telekinetic freak out and she ends up like leveling the entire school in the book she levels the entire town yeah, there's so much more carnage in the book that De Palma ended up cutting. They just show her basically burning down the school and uh, killing uh, Billy Nolan and Chris Hargison, and then she just goes home. Um, I feel like part of that is because you had a limit on budget and you had a limit of what you could do with special effects in those days. And... Then you get to the 2013 film where there have been big advancements in technology since then, so you can show some more of the carnage that was in the book, specifically the gas station explosion, and um, the climax of the film is even more of a thing as a result. Um, but at the same time, like sometimes with like especially adaptations in the 70s, when stuff is cut from book to film, there's usually a reason for it, and nowadays with the internet people who read books have more i guess room to be loud about something not being exactly like the book and that leads to like new adaptations of things that uh portray themselves as oh we're going to be closer to the book and that was initially how when 
uh, Pierce's film was put into development before Pierce became on board. That was what the studio was looking for. They were supposedly looking for a movie that was closer to the book. And when Stephen King was told about this in an interview, his response was, why? Yeah, it's really hard to adapt elements like the sort of epistolary looking back larger world stuff to it. And that also means it was a good idea for the De Palma movie to cut out things like how she attacks the whole town and not just the school because taking out those elements makes it such an intimate and individual story about like this one girl and her very small life rather than a larger sort of systemic story. Yeah. And if you're trying to do Carrie again, focusing on systemic stuff is definitely something you get to pay attention to, especially a Pierce who has spent her whole life as a a queer woman in Hollywood trying to make stuff, constantly getting attached to stuff that doesn't get made. I, I see what you're saying about systemic stuff would be a good idea to focus on because Carrie was written almost 50 years ago, like 40 years before the remake. And since then, like institutions that are responsible for children, schools, like the things like that, They've gotten a lot better at putting systems in place to protect victims of bullying and parental abuse, which is the whole idea of who Carrie is. Yeah, and you kind of get a little of that in the 2013 film, because immediately after the event that triggers everything, in the 2013 film, you get the scene in the principal's office, and the principal in this movie, played by Michael Mann, regular Barry Shabaka Henley, he is portrayed as a lot more empathetic, a lot more wanting to get to the bottom of this, wanting to find out who was um, to blame, and a lot more trusting of the of the gym teacher character, Miss Desjardins, um, than the same character in the book and in the 70s film, even. Yeah, that is true. He also mentions it at some point, I forget exactly when, like, you've had troubles ever since the state told your mom that she couldn't homeschool you anymore, which is an interesting line. Like, it, I think, establishes what her situation is and what her mother is that we've kind of already seen. But more importantly than that, it establishes, like, the school's relationship to her, what the school thought about her before like the extreme bullying and then telekinesis stuff happened. Yeah. And you also have the Pierce film updating the book in that it includes um, how a lot of bullying now is online. And in the EPK Pierce talks about cyberbullying and how she researched it. And she, said that she was saddened by it in part because the internet is often where people go to sort of like get away from potential real life troubles and how they can't even be themselves online due to cyberbullying. And this is mainly uh, portrayed in the film by Chris Hargensen taking a video of the shower room thing on her phone and putting it on YouTube. Yeah, and I really like the concept. It's a solid way to update it, but 
in practice they are so wedded to the original like plot of the story and the way those events proceed that I don't think they're really able to give it the focus it needs to be as a new element in this story. Yeah, and also, like, the other thing is that video would have been taken off of YouTube in, like, 10 seconds. Oh, yeah. I'm vaguely assuming the video was unlisted. Well, the thing is, later... Like, they do the scene from the book where Chris Harkinson's lawyer dad tries to defend her, get her reinstated for prom, and they actually mention, and and the Desjardins character, who is played in the film by Judy Greer, um, brings up that there is a video of the incident that had been posted to YouTube. Yeah, and the thing is, that changes a lot about how the story would go. And that's what I mean by it's not given the focus it needs. Yeah, because, like, there's still so much of the film where the internet is basically a non-entity. Yeah, exactly. And so much of Carrie's journey relies on the fact that she is clueless, that she's had no way of learning these very basic things about the world and about people because she's led such a sheltered and abused life. And in the De Palma movie, she goes to the library. In the King movie, she like she doesn't do the research. The research is all done after the fact by the like people looking back. But in the new movie, in the Pierce movie, she goes on the internet, and that's kind of it. Yeah, it's barely even that in the Pierce version. She still like gets a bunch of books from the library, and she's but they update it by having her watch a YouTube video about telekinesis very briefly on a library computer. And there's a bit where like some guys like, Hey, uh, sorry, uh, you can put this on full screen, you know? Yeah. I I think that's meant to show that she, she's never used the internet before, which is something you'd need to establish for that character in 2013. Yeah. Because like you still get the look in their house and the only technology seen are electric lights, a radio and a sewing machine. Yes. I think that there is a concession made to 40 years of teens being given more trust and independence and autonomy, which is that Carrie as a character has a lot more agency and knowledge and backbone, to be blunt, than she does in the book or the De Palma movie. Yeah, because you have scenes of her having theological arguments with her mother, which is not something from either version um, before then. From the start, she's shown as rebellious and resistant to what her mom is ordering her to do so much. Yeah, like the scene where Carrie's mom is talking about the sin of blood. In the book and in the De Palma film, she like starts fighting back, but just ends up getting but she just also just ends up like giving into it despite her cries of protest in the Pierce film. She straight up says she is straight up talking about how the whole curse of blood thing was never mentioned in the Bible and that she has a more sort of modern healthy view of God. She's still very religious and probably still has some problems with her view of it as shaped by her mom, but she does fight back against how her mom practices it. Yeah, it's a really intriguing element, and I hate to do this to you, but I think after that I want to take a break 
for a moment in your cinematography corner. All right, it's time for the cinematography corner. Uh, I really like cinematography. That's a thing that you know about me if you're around me for a certain amount of time. Like, for example, I was recommending to all the boys I've loved before to somebody, and I specifically started talking about how it's an actual good use of 235 compared to more movies that just use it because it's the ratio you're supposed to use, and the result is just kind of lazy. See, that's the kind of tangent I go on sometimes, and that's why uh, I have this segment. Yes, very much. 235 is an aspect ratio for people who don't know. Well, this one is going to be a bit interesting because uh, the the cinematographer on uh, Kimberly Pierce's Carrie was a guy named Steve Yedlin. Yedlin is a great cinematographer. He's mainly known for being... Uh, the regular cinematographer of Ryan Johnson, who did Looper, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Knives Out, great-looking movies. And Yedlin is known as, like, someone who is super into digital cinematography and has basically, like, written a lot and done so many tests to prove his view that digital is basically better than film and can be made to look virtually indistinguishable from film. And Carrie was shot, you know digitally it was shot on the area alexa specifically which is kind of the industry one of the industry standard uh, digital cameras it's that and red's epic cameras at this point and so much of what you see these days is airy and it looks like a movie shot on the area alexa and what does that mean for those uninitiated even at its most colorful it feels more muted especially coming from the the Palma film, which is like, you know, shot on film because they didn't have digital back then, obviously. But De Palma also like had one of those great eyes. He was always known for like filling things with color. He that's that's part of like he studied a lot of directors who were using Technicolor and thus he like used a lot of that. Like you look at Carrie and it's a lush movie in a lot of ways. And then you look at the Pierce film and it looks you know like a standard modern digital movie in that everything is just a bit too muted a bit too gray and I genuinely feel like it works against the film like I don't really have a say in the film versus digital debate it's all personal preference there are incredible looking movies that were shot digitally they were there are incredible looking movies that are shot on film. There are also some really bad looking movies that are shot on film. Like, you know, like Skyfall was shot digitally and is one of the best looking movies of its decade. And like, you know, like there are so many shitty movies that were shot on film. It's nice to decompress like this in the cinematography corner and just let all this like raw data wash over me after having to deal with how like complicated my feelings about Carrie are. I mean, it's an easy thing to have complicated opinions about because, you know, for a number of reasons. So, like, pro-carry, like, anti-airy. I mean, I'm not anti-Alexa. There are good-looking movies that were shot on the area Alexa. Because the Alexa has come a long way since 2013. You have um, new versions of the Alexa. Like, the Alexa 65 is an incredible camera. What's different about it? I don't know, like, what advances there can be in a camera. 
Well, the Alexa 65 has a larger sensor size. It was made specifically to like shoot 6K and in a way that's comparable to 65 millimeter film. Interesting. And like it's kind of become the standard big budget film camera and even films that are on lower budgets as well are using this camera like uh, the Regina King film One Night in Miami which comes to Prime in January. Oh, uh, oh Regina. This, uh, I thought you said Regina George. It was like, wait, they made a sequel all about Regina George? Oh, God. Look, if that had happened, I'd have heard about it. And maybe I'd have finally watched uh, Mean Girls by then. Oh, scandalous. And so the, the elements like the larger sensor size and the greater resolution, that translates to a crisper image and more defined colors? Yep. Hmm. Okay, yeah, good to know. And I think like that a good thing to take us out of the cinematography corner because I could leave you here all day frankly is how is how memorable that image of Carrie covered in blood is. Like that moment is such an indelible image no matter which version of it you're watching. But in the new version, all I could think about was how obviously CGI the blood was and how obviously real it was in the De Palma version. I mean, the blood for the blood dump was not CGI. Really? In the 2013 really? film. Really? Yeah, in the EPK, they had a whole thing about how they did like a billion different blood tests and and like they had like a footage shot by like a dude with like a cannon while they were shooting the scene that was the that was actual like blood being dumped on her. Wow, shows you what I know. I I thought it looked really fake. It was probably the slow motion effect how much they drag it out. Yeah. And also like and also uh Pierce talked about like a bunch of various things like they were doing like a billion tests and whatnot and they double cut it to like emphasize emphasize the trauma. But at the same time like well, I know what the thought going through my mind when that happened was that the original film did not make me think. Enlighten us. How long does it take pig blood to coagulate? Well, pig, blo- pig blood end- is one and- thing. Pig blood that's been sitting in a bucket in the rafters for a while. Who knows? For the record, the time it takes for pig blood to coagulate, according to the Google search I did, 10 minutes. Well, like, that's coagulate as in, like, if a pig gets a cut, it'll be a scar or a scab in 10 minutes if there's a whole bucket of blood then the chemical properties will be very different maybe part of it is that the blood in the uh pierce film is darker which Hmm. was probably which was probably done to like skirt uh some rating things like i don't know if the movie was rated pg-13 or r it would have had to be r right like it's no fun to say but like I think just talking about periods gives you an automatic R because because those standards, they're double. True. And yeah, the film is R, just checked. But yeah, like it speaks to the larger phenomenon with like the prom freak out horror sequence, which is it's a lot more of a like conventional you're there for the gore horror movie kind of thing in the Pierce movie than it is in the De Palma movie or the book because 
there's a lot of emphasis on like the creative ways people get murdered by the telekinesis. There are lots of like gory, drawn out deaths. Then when she goes and encounters like the perpetrators in their car, she like slowly shoves her face through the glass windshield, then blows up a gas station nearby just to immolate them. When I was listening to Pierce's commentary for the deleted scene, she talked a lot about the horror movie trope of teens who have sex or show desire to have sex always meet their end. And she's, and she said she was having fun playing with that trope throughout the movie and ultimately gave that as the reason for why uh, Chris and Billy Nolan met the fates they did. That's really, really interesting. And I want to talk about it more, but I think to to do that, we should get on the highway to the gender zone. It's the gender zone. The gender zone. Welcome to the gender zone. A cross-gender adaptation means there's always a lot of gender stuff to talk about, especially for two analytical gender queers, which you got over here. And this is going to be the space where we really delve into that. Like I say, we kind of been there already, but it's nice to like get in the car, take a little drive down the highway. And now that we're here, yeah, let's talk about how much Carrie has in common with the sort of like conventional moral moralistic nature of like dealing with women in horror movies. Yeah, because uh, the first Carrie came out before... Uh, slasher movies um, sort accidentally invented the trope of... Well, I say accidentally because it can be traced back to uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, where Laurie is a virgin. And in the Carpenter thing, it was a storytelling decision, part of what made the character, you know, a bit, a bit of an outcast, a bit of a weirdo, even though she is fairly popular and she has friends and whatnot. It's why the care it's why the character was babysitting on halloween instead of having fun with her friends then a couple years later friday the 13th happens and shamelessly copies that and ends up creating the horror trope of the virgin is always the final girl now meanwhile carrie like it exists on a completely different plane to that since she gets her first period her mom thinks it's because she's immoral but of course it's actually really, really late because, well, it isn't really explained why except for in the book where it's like a consequence of her having psychic powers. That's another thing. Like, there is an alternate opening and an alternate ending to the film in the special features. My iTunes version didn't have the alternate ending, but I do have a description of the alternate ending pulled up. Originally, the movie was going to open with the scene from the book where a young Carrie sees a neighbor sunbathing, has a brief conversation with her. Then the mom comes out and does like a whole, eh, you're showing too much skin, eh. Oh, she's a Roman Catholic now? She's Italian? (sighs) Hey, Carrie, (laughs) and if I was awake, get her in your closet, eh. That's usually your bit. I'm sorry for taking it first. If that's the way I am, I might have to do some soul searching. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, uh, maybe we should get to that off the airwaves. Like, But the power she gets and the horror that happens, none of that really has anything to do with, like, 
the mor- the moral nature of her sexual maturity, but because of 40 years of people expecting that, the movie, it sort of takes the next step. Like, if she has a period, that means we got to talk about pregnancy. And the movie starts with Julianne Moore giving birth to Carrie, which is, like, described slightly in the first movie in the book but never shown and when she gives birth to her she immediately thinks of killing her but as the like as the knife is over her newborn child she feels so much compassion for it and like takes it in her arms and it starts a thread where Carrie's mother is a lot more sympathetic to some extent, than she is in any other version of the story. Yeah, and I listened to the alternate opening with Kim with Kim Pierce's commentary, and she talked a bit about why they didn't go with that as the opening scene, which, honestly, I would not have done. Like, when I was reading the book, I was thinking, okay, uh, that scene wasn't in the De Palma version. I personally would have opened with that scene if I was making a film with this now, And it turns out uh, that's what Pierce tried to do. She said that as the opening, she found it a bit underwhelming. Like she shot it, put it together. She just didn't think it fully worked. Like she thought it was a kind of a weak sauce introduction to who Margaret in the film was. And also she did not find the hail in the scene, the effect uh, particularly good. But at the same time, I did find the scene like, more intriguing even in its sort of like not greatly executed form than i did the actual opening of the movie which is a scene dramatizing something that really did not need to be dramatized i see see what you mean so like the scene you would begin with just to clarify is the conversation with the sunbather or the preg or the birth one uh the, the scene with the sunbather yeah i see that we're in the gender zone. I think something else I want to bring up is, yeah, the reason we're doing this is it's a version of such a female-centered story, and this is the first time it's been realized by, like, Kimberly Pierce's gender identity is a bit complicated, but let's call her a woman for the sake of argument. Uh, Pierce uses uh, she-they pronouns, so... I think a big change to every other version is she gives everyone who isn't Carrie and probably Carrie too. She gives all the female characters a lot more dignity, let's say. Like she she no one is naked in the opening shower scene. Like Carrie gets this like strength. There's a lot more parallels that are drawn between like the mean girls and the nice girls and Carrie and the adult women who sort of don't really know what's going on, but are genuinely trying. Uh, yeah. Another thing that they talked about in the EPK was that they wanted to focus more on the Carrie and Margaret relationship and show that there is genuine love and affection there, even as uh, they ultimately come to blows. And I kind of get, the intent behind that but also 
with how Margaret White is portrayed in other parts of the movie, she is, like, portrayed as the kind of person who, like, regularly, like, causes pain to herself when she feels like she's sinning as a form of penance. Like, there is the scene at her job where she does that. She's talking to a woman, and she, um, behind the counter, like, drives a staple into her thigh. I think that's also an element of sympathy, although not necessarily like identification or understanding it's supposed to give you a fuller picture of this woman and how she got to be this way and why she thinks she's doing what's best for her daughter even though she so obviously isn't and i think on that point to like what she's done like the daughter she's raised it's hard to not bring up chloe grace moretz is a really poor choice to play carrie in any version. I get why they went for Moretz. She was a rising star at the time, an incredibly talented performer. I still think she is an incredibly talented performer. Oh, yes. And and she kind of had, especially at the time when she was a teenager, a kind of alt-girl energy um, that, in general, is why she became as big as she did, which is in part because of her probably biggest role at the time, Hit Girl and Kick-Ass. But at the same time, like, she had sort of an outsider energy to herself, but it's not the kind of outsider that Carrie was. It's the kind of outsider that leads to people listening to Bring Me the Horizon and shopping at Hot Topic, not the, not the kind of religious repressed outsider energy. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. And I would not have been able to cite those bands or that band. I'm not sure if you were talking about more than one. Oh, just one. Oh, okay. But yeah, you're right. It's outsider, but it's self-possessed. It's power she has within herself. It's a confidence. And like, there's a danger, but Sissy Spacek, she was cast to be sort of actively off-putting and pitiable in some ways, and even sort of below pity, like I mentioned earlier. And that is not a quality that Moretz has at all. And also in the film, like, I was talking about this with our mutual friend Andrew McRae last night, who was a big king dork. Uh, he was talking, and we got to talking, and we talked about how Spacek um, was not the character as described in the book. The character is, you know, overweight, pimply, um, and whatnot, and it's described as her sort of, like, eating a lot of sweets because they were, like, kind of the only vice she could have. And her only way of coping with her life. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't in the original film with the casting of Spacek. But at the same time, Spacek is attractive, but she kind of has a bit of an alien quality about her at the time. She had a um, interestingly angled face. She had these like big, big eyes. And you also had costuming choices and makeup and hair choices like her. Like, everyone else has big, fluffy 70s hair, and her f hair just falls straight down and looks almost uh, neglected. Yeah, it's such an easy way to set her apart, and one that's not really doable now. In fact, to an extent, they do the opposite, because Chloe Grace Moretz has this, like, th she has this huge, frizzy, blonde hair that makes her stand out from everyone else who's more sort of groomed and manicured, but it doesn't make her look like she fits in any less. Yeah, and also like a thought I had watching the 2013 movie was that 
stuff that's written by Stephen King kind of demands a bunch of people who look like they're from the 70s and 80s. Like, they look like where people were like even leading men looked like character actors and that whole kind of thing because people in the De Palma film are like attractive but not in the way people now are considered attractive like diets were worse uh things were different and as a result people looked and aged quicker than they do now that's an interesting way of looking at it yeah it's like some of the films one of the films i was thinking about is another uh, adaptation of Stephen King, uh, John Carpenter's Christine, which is a p- near-perfect movie. And when's it from? Uh, the early 80s. Ah, yeah, so definitely in that sweet spot you're talking about. Yeah, like, I think Harry Dean Stanton is in the movie. Harry Dean Stanton, you don't get people who look like Harry Dean Stanton nowadays, because Harry Dean Stanton, like, came from, like, a comp- or at least if you do get people who look like Harry Dean Stanton, they don't become actors. Yeah, I do see what you mean. And if they do become actors, they aren't in, like, big Hollywood movies. But And, yeah, I think that th- that's a good place to talk about something else that really stuck out to me, which is, like, you have all the other kids in the school, and, like, they're mostly played by people who, like, whether or not you've heard of him is very dependent on your age. But the other big star besides Chloe Grace Moretz is... Tommy Ross, who takes her to prom, uh, he is played by Ansel Elgort, pre-Fault in Our Stars. And Elgort makes the choice to play this character who, like we mentioned, is very emotionally perceptive. He plays him as a himbo. Yeah, like, Elgort is still, like, like the recently canceled Ansel Elgort. Uh, he plays the character, you know, as is. Like, the character s- still has quite a bit of intelligence, and kindness but at the same time the character is a bit of a has a bit of a himboish quality to him in that he's you know he plays the character like tommy ross in the the palma version seems kind of reluctant in his popularity like the scene in the poetry class where the teacher is reading his writing he looks like he would rather die like he's smiling but he looks dead on but he looks like he on the inside he completely hates it Tommy Ross in the Pierce version, by the way, speaking of, this was actually Elgert's first film role. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it looks like this was his first role, period. Wow, so she discovered him. Congratulations to her. And not congratulations to the person Elgert assaulted. Oh, I didn't know about that. That is not great to hear. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, Elgert's a terrible human being, but at the same time, like, he has a great presence as an actor and i thought he was probably the best performance in the entire movie and i'm i'm interested in what you think that decision to make him a himbo says when you put it up against like i was saying how much dignity all the other women have to be a himbo does not mean you don't have dignity um like aquaman as played by jason momoa is a himbo hmm and you wouldn't say he's without dignity. Then is is there another word I could be using to describe this quality I think is taken away from the character and is given to almost all the other characters, most of whom are female? Well, the thing is, I think it's more that like Tommy Ross is just kind of like, in this version, more confident in his popularity. 
Like, he's a guy who, who everyone thinks is the shit, and he knows it. And as a result, he has a confidence that Tommy Ross in the De Palma film doesn't have. I, But I think he also has a lot less awareness of people's emotions. Like, he seems to understand Carrie's reticence and Sue's guilt a lot less than he does in the earlier versions. I don't know. I thought that he spent, like, the time at the prom, he's, like, definitely, like, trying to get a Carrie on her level, not trying to do anything that actively makes her uncomfortable. Oh, yes. And granted... But I, I think... It's been a much harder job for him to get to that point, and he doesn't seem to realize the larger implications of what's going on, and he sort of tries to laugh it off when confronted with it by Miss Desjardins, and he doesn't really show any signs that he's aware of what he's doing in the larger sense, whereas the other versions definitely do. Yeah, but I feel like a big part of it is that he barely paid attention to Carrie. That's what I mean. There's less emotional intelligence and perception. Well, I don't even think it's that. It's more like in the 70s film, like because there's less internet and less things to be distracted by, he like knows a bit more about what people do to Carrie White in the 70s film. And you don't have the scene where he and Sue Snell are fucking in the car in the 70s movie. You just know that you have Tommy Ross in the 70s movie introduced with the poetry scene in the classroom, and then the next time he shows up, it's Sue at his football practice. In the 2013 film, it's lacrosse, which, yeah. The popular white fuckboys play, play lacrosse now. Yeah, definitely. Um, And all she... And the scene ends simply with Snell saying that she wants Tommy to take Carrie White to prom. And, like, in the 2013 film, they work in, like, the scene of Tommy and Sue fucking in the car is in the 70s movie. I mean, it is in the 2013 film. And, however, it's not in the earlier film. In the 70s version, it's a lot more of a domestic scene. Like, they're just at home watching dumb stuff on TV. True. But like I want to I want to get at our difference in perspective here on this character because I think there's a lot to talk about and I'm curious why you see him as having more awareness than I see him. I mean, part of that might just be because of how Elgert plays the character. Like as reticent as I am to compliment his acting, he is like an incredibly earnest actor and he really um plays the kindness so well more than i thought of the performance by the actor in the 70s film whose name is escaping me i'll look it up but i think like that earnestness that with with which he plays the character that has nothing to do with how aware he is of his actions and i think someone who's very earnest but unaware that is a very good definition of a himbo, especially when you add in that he's such a good-looking jock. Oh, Willie! Oh, William Cat, the greatest American hero. He was Tommy Ross in the '70s movie. So that's why he has that fucking hair. Yep, he's the guy who's walking on air, believe it or not. But 
anyways, another thing, like there this was like a change that I noticed that was not in the book or the film. Elgert's Tommy Ross as after the blood hits Car- him and Carrie is immediately fucking furious at whoever did this, screams what the hell, and seems like he's scanning the crowd trying to look for a clue of who just embarrassed Carrie. In, in the 70s movie that happens too, but because it's a lot more about Carrie's like immediate shock and dissociation, it's given a lot less importance. Yeah, and Pierce, on the other hand, like gives it its own spotlight. Yeah, th- that's definitely a difference. There's a lot more of the story that isn't from Carrie's perspective in this version. A lot more that's just about the sort of what's going on at this school and, rather than how Carrie fits into it. Yeah, and honestly, the focus on the titular Carrie being like more of the point of the De Palma film is probably a bigger part of why that movie is successful where this one is less so. Even though it's truer to the novel in its own way, because, like, maybe it goes back to that issue you were talking about with King and meanness. Like, Kimberly Pierce wants to give, let's call it dignity, I can't think of a better word, to most of the characters, but so much of this story is so mean and misanthropic that those two impulses run up against each other yeah also the movie that i was most thinking about when watching carrie 2013 was chronicle interesting yeah which is another film about teens gaining superpowers albeit through a different way and through a different kind of filmmaking and i will admit i first started thinking oh yeah this is kind of like chronicle because alex russell the actor in Chronicle who wasn't Dane DeHaan or Michael B. Jordan is Billy Nolan in this movie and he sucks in a way like he's supposed to suck because he is supposed to suck I mean but at the same time like he just has so little charisma and granted you're following up John Travolta at the height of his powers but at the same time like he has so much less personality. He has so much less everything. He looks, I guess, like a modern bad boy, but he just cannot get it across in the slightest. I think that I think Pierce's version of the story is a lot less interested in him. It's so much more about, if not necessarily the female perspective, than like those relationships between women that like he becomes much less of an important figure because he's just following along with what she's doing yeah but at the same time though like that feels more of place with the 70s version than uh, russell's doing because like it is shown in the 2013 version that the pig blood was not chris's idea there is actually a scene that got cut of Chris and Billy Nolan and his and his dumbass friends in the car driving to the pig farm where Chris doesn't even know where they're going. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that taking that scene out, like it gets rid of whatever little agency he has in the story. Yeah, Pierce said the scene was cut because it was ulti- because it ultimately just took too long. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, it 
it it's very interesting examining the changes to both the male and the female character because Chris Hargison herself, I think she's painted as a lot more mean and a lot less like actively superior if you follow like she's a lot more vindictive i think yeah and you kind of see that in the scene where she puts a video on youtube where all the characters are making jokes they would uh 16 17 18 year olds would not be making yeah and also there's like a moment where she almost kisses her her female friend which there was an alternate take of the scene where they actually did kiss hmm and I feel like you'd be better at talking about that. Well, according to Pierce, it was done mainly to kind of show off Chris and Billy's relationship and their dynamic, which is that they're constantly daring each other and they get off on um, doing crazy stuff and daring each other to do crazy stuff and actually doing it. That makes a lot of sense. I actually really like that idea and I think it's executed pretty well because... It is sort of outlandish, this whole idea, like even in the 70s, let alone now, when there, as we've been saying, are so many systems in place. And that's a really good way to, like, make it feel more justified. And I wish I wasn't so down on this movie because there are a lot of those ideas that I like, like at every level in the directing and the readaptation of the screenplay. And I think maybe we should talk about that screenplay because you definitely have more information about it than me. Yeah, Uh, the script was um, originally penned by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who is probably best known these days as the creator of Riverdale. Yeah. At the time, at the time, though, he was a playwright. Um, Infamously, he was part of the creative team behind uh, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, one of the biggest flops in Broadway history. Another huge flop in Broadway history was the musical of Carrie, by the way, from the 80s. Look it up. It's so much fun to read about. About that, in an episode of Riverdale, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa's show, in the second season, the sh- the school, the Riverdale school, puts on the Carrie musical. Wow. Yeah, and the songs are in the episode. And the songs are not good. I guess they were easy to get the rights to, but like, tell me about the screenplay. Well, the thing is, with Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, I am actually familiar with one of his plays. Uh, hmm. The play is called Rough Magic. It was published in 2009. My college actually put it on uh, in my junior year, I think. The best way I can describe Rough Magic is Ready Player One for classic lit nerds. And Shakespeare nerds. Isn't that League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? This one is specifically more Shakespeare. Ah, I see. It's called Rough Magic, you know. It's based on Line the Tempest. So that's your knowledge of Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. And what does he bring to Carrie? I guess the modernization. Um, And I guess the idea is that he knows more about the teen stuff and whatnot. He later went on to write for Greg Ber- a bunch of Greg Berlanti shows. And he was also hired in part because he adapted uh, The Stand into a comic for Marvel during his period as a comic book writer. Oh, okay. But, like, once he had written his version, then what happened? Well, Pierce was hired. The movie shot. Then 
reshoots were ordered and the script was rewritten by Lawrence D. Cohen, who was the writer of the De Palma movie. Like, they actually got him back, like, after 40 years to do this new version? Yep. That is such a weird idea. I assume that, yeah, he wrote the musical adaptation of Carrie, and he also wrote um, the film version of Peter Strub's Ghost Story, um, and the miniseries of It and the Tommyknockers. That's so interesting to me, because the original movie it's i thought that the new movie was basically the same script as the original movie rather than a readaptation because it's so much more faithful to the original movie than the book and all the stuff inserted is something that like it's relatively easy to do in a new draft of a screenplay and that's why i assumed he had the credit uh nope it's because he did rewrites yeah that's crazy to me and he's even credited over uh, Sakasa. I I have no idea how that works, but yeah, that is, wow. W WGA shenanigans are weird. I think that goes a long way to explaining why so much of the movie feels so conflicted. Yeah, because they seem to have done like, if I had to guess, without having a copy of the pre Cohen screenplay, um, Sakasa's version was more trying to be its own thing and for whatever reason it was deemed to have not worked because pierce is open about in the commentary for the deleted scenes when something did when something was changed it was mainly because it didn't work um like usually i'm a big fan of just assuming that the studio that studios fucked it up as you know um but and that was my thought when i first heard of the alternate opening and the alternate ending of the film but then I actually looked at her reasoning for why they didn't do the opening scene as originally planned, and it did kind of make sense from that perspective. The thing is, the alternate ending was not in the deleted scenes portion of my iTunes copy of the film. I meant to look, see if it was on YouTube, but I forgot. But I do have a description of the alternate ending. Let's hear. Like, the movie ends with Sue Snell giving a... Uh, court, speech at court laying a, a rose on Carrie and Margaret White's uh, defaced grave and then the grave cracks and we hear Carrie's scream and a rock song playing as it goes to the credits like it was originally just Sue placing a rose on Carrie's grave and well okay some extra context during the climax of the film Sue so shows up at Carrie's house after she's killed her mom and Carrie starts to react violently and negatively again, but she finds out that Sue is pregnant and telekinesis her to safety as the house gets crushed by raining stones and sinks into the ground. And in the alternate ending, uh, Sue places the rose on Carrie's grave and she starts feeling pain from her pregnancy, goes into labor, is in the hospital, and as she's struggling with the birth, uh, Carrie's hand... Uh, emerges from her grabs sue's arm then sue wakes up because it was a nightmare her mom is trying to snap her out of her terror and then as sue screams there's a subliminal image of carrie soaked in blood carrying sue's baby hmm wait the version in the the ending of the version i saw was 
there was that same nightmare, that same sort of pregnancy version of the hand from the grave from the original movie. I didn't catch a subliminal image of Carrie, but I could have missed it. Was this the, was was yours the cracking gravestone version? No, mine was the pregnancy version. How did you how did you get that ending? Maybe I saw maybe I like saw the wrong cut. I mean, when the alternate ending was released on the Blu-ray, it wasn't cut into the film. Hmm. Weird. Uh, where'd you watch Where'd you watch the movie? Yeah, I, I watched it uh, streaming from Prime. Hmm. I, I think you know, I the think movie tried. This is a question I want to sort of try to answer. Like, what should ca- a new version of Carrie do, and what does it need to do? This is going to sound super uh, cynical and basic, especially coming from me, a very white person. But have they considered making Carrie black? That's an interesting thing, because, like, this was Ansel Elgort's first role. This came out in 2013. This was, like, a year after The Hunger Games. This was cresting the wave, like, that second wave of YA that was big in the early mid-2010s. And I'm not sure whether the initial idea was, like, oh, a new version of Carrie will be perfect for that audience, or if they were just... Well, the movie was originally being developed in 2008. Hmm. I'm not certain then. I'm not sure which audience they wanted to go for it, because, but the way, the way you describe that version of Carrie, it sounds a lot more like the sort of modern A24 indie artsy, like socially conscious kind of horror movie that we get a lot more of now. Whereas at the time, it was the like paranormal activity era of horror. Yeah, like kind of the early Blumhouse kind of thing, like the Insidious movies were happening around the same time. Conjuring was just getting big that same year. Yeah, definitely. And I, when I asked, like, what does it need to do? What should it do? I was thinking more in terms of, like, how you update the events rather than the circumstances. But yeah, that is a really interesting idea that I hadn't considered at all. And it's really intriguing. Like, as for me, like, like I mentioned over and over, it's there are systems in place to protect people like Carrie. And if you're doing a new version of this story, you have to make the story about how these systems fail rather than about how they don't exist. True. And also something I just want to mention really quickly. uh, Another one of our friends, uh, James, he... When I was talking about it the other night, he suggest he recommended me the Norwegian film Thelma as a better sort of type of modern retelling of a Carrie type story. Hmm. I I don't think I've even heard of Thelma. Uh, what can you tell me about it? Well, the brief plot synopsis I'm seeing is that it's the story of a sheltered young woman from a religious family who who finds out that she has an inexplicable power. That materializes when she starts to uh, crush on a, another woman at her university. Now that's very interesting, and it feels like the kind of thing Kimberly Pierce was definitely trying to get at with, as you mentioned, the stuff she tried to put in of like the women are thinking a lot more about other women even during sex than they're thinking about men. And... Also, Thelma was a big critical darling. It was released in the States by The Orchard. Um, Norway submitted it as its best foreign film uh, contender for the Oscars that year. It didn't It didn't get the nomination, though. 
But yeah, this is like a movie that's been recommended to me before. So it's something I'm definitely going to have to watch. I should probably watch it too, now that I've sort of gone down this Carrie rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm also seeing comparisons to Let the Right One In from critics, which, amazing movie, obviously. Oh, yes. And, like... I wish this was better. I want to see Thelma because I kind of want a good modern version of Carrie because it's such an elemental story. It's such a timeless story. Like, the, apparently Thelma is Norwegian, but it's such a, like, story about America. Like, I I really want a new version of it. I really want Kimberly Pierce to have a career because she has so many amazing movies she wants to make. Yeah, uh, when we found uh, the IndieWire article um interview she mentioned a very queer uh sex comedy that she's been trying to get made for a while at the moment the project is set up at universal she's still doing rewrites of it judd apatow is set to produce yeah i want to see that tomorrow yeah from what pierce describes it's a movie she's been thinking about for a long time something she is super passionate about and something that a studio does want her to make so if that movie gets greenlit and she's able to make it, I and if it's given like a theatrical release, if theaters ever come back, the fact that that kind of movie would even be released by a major studio would be kind of a big deal, especially one that's as much about sex as it is, as that one seems to be. And since it's a comedy, hopefully when it does come out, we're all going to laugh at it. Yeah, I think like, I think I might have just ruined the entire episode by making it retroactively the lead up to that terrible pun. I'm sorry, Mavis. But also one last thing about the 2013 film. There's two more things, really, but this is one of them. I kind of touched on this earlier, but I really do not like Julianne Moore as Margaret White. She just goes way too big with it in a way I just don't find appealing. And what's the second? I'm not sure how I feel. Uh, the second is, like, if, how long will it be until someone tries Carrie again? Because Carrie came out a few years before the big Stephen King boom that was kind of caused by it being a massive, massive hit critically and financially. And after that, everyone was jumping on Stephen King properties again. Um, Netflix got a couple, including Gerald's Game, which was released around the same time as it and is really good. Um... But at the same time, like, the ones that have been, like, theatrically released, at least, have not gone well for one reason or another. Like, uh, the remake of Pet Cemetery. we will be covering the original version of Pet Cemetery on this show, by the way. Um, I have not seen the remake. Um, but the original is really good. Uh, but the remake of Pet Cemetery did not, did well financially, but did not do well critically. Uh, Doctor Sleep, which was a long gap sequel to The Shining, was a big... A critical hit and is a movie that is gaining quite a hell of a following which it should because that movie fucking rules um was not uh successful financially and it chapter two sucks so so like with the advent of all these king adaptations like they announced recently they're making a girl who loved tom gordon movie of all things uh i know they hired like a guy a legit director for that who who was it Oh, it's, oh shit, it's Lynn Ramsey! Oh, wow. I'm glad we managed to end it on such a positive note, because I'm really excited for that. 
But yeah, it sounds like there are going to be a lot more interesting adaptations of King by women, interesting adaptations of these female stories by female filmmakers. And that's a really nice thing to see. So Mavis, where can people find you? Twitter at I am a something and that's it. Okay. And I am writing for Meme Insider, memeinsider.com. And yeah, you can read my stuff there. And while you're, while you're looking at stuff, check out all the other podcasts on the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad network. Read their print stuff at anatomyofascream.com. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at, at A-O-A-S underscore X-X. And other than that, have a medium day. Scream Pod Squad.